Hello and welcome to Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me over on the other side. How you doing, Dars? Hey, hey, I'm doing all right. She's my fantastic <laughs> She's my fantastic co-host who made an entire Yay. Thanksgiving dinner for eight people. <sighs> it, there were not eight people at my house. It was just me and my parents, but like when the food left, it went to feed eight people. So it was still a lot. Yeah, that's that's so, intense. Recovering. I cooked nothing this year. We don't have a stove yet. We still haven't gotten our stove. You don't stove. have a stove? No. Oh, my gosh. When we did the kitchen remodel, the counters are, the rest of the counters are going in. We have the backsplashes going in tomorrow, but we haven't gotten the stove yet. Oh. There's a lot of stuff on back order right now because of all the yeah. supply chain issues. And so yeah. it's due this week, but we'll see if that actually happens or not. So I found this really interesting article. Um, New details of extraordinarily preserved 4,000-year-old mummies emerged before Halloween. So this article Ooh. came out a few weeks back, but I've been, always been interested in, in some of these mummies that come out of China because some of them are just, like, extraordinarily well-preserved, mm-hmm. and so they're really neat. But I guess scientists may have finally solved a decades-old mystery about the origins of a group of surprisingly preserved mummies found in China's Tarim Basin during the 1990s. In a report published in Nature, researchers announced that the group of mummies they may, they, that many believe were migrants who had traveled to China to share farming practices may have been indigenous people who learned agricultural techniques from neighboring groups. Researchers used genomic analysis to trace the ancestry of the mummified farmers to Stone Age hunter-gatherers who lived in Asia some 9,000 years ago. you got to look at the pictures of these. Look them up online. I don't think I want to. They look like mummies. They're really neat, though. Okay. Like, there's, they show this one who supposedly was this exceptionally beautiful woman. And okay. she has, like, this kind of fur hat on, and her hair is, like, all still there and, like, perfectly preserved. It's so wild. No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think No, I they're to. really neat. Uh, okay. The mummies have long fascinated scientists and the public alike since their original discovery. Beyond being extraordinarily preserved, they're found in highly unusual context, and they exhibit diverse and far-flung cultural elements according to molecular archaeologists at Harvard University. We found strong evidence they actually represent a highly genetically isolated local population. And there's pictures of like where they found them too. It's kind of this really arid, dry desert area. Hmm. And the, the mummies were first discovered in the early 20th century in a region of China that's a desertous area that's known for being one of the most hostile places on earth. Really? The bodies were buried in boat-shaped coffins and wrapped in cattle hide, which combined with the hot and salty environment of the desert, kept them naturally preserved. If you were to ask me, like, if China had a desert, I would flat out just be like, I'd look you in your face and say, no, I did not know China had a desert. They do. I think it's up north, closer to Siberia, perhaps. Okay. But we knew an awful lot about these people physically, but we knew nothing about who they were and why they were there. It's believed that they were buried in the area starting 2,000 or more years ago. Scientists sequenced the genomes, which contain all the genetic information of an organism, of 13 people who lived between 4,000 and 3,700 years ago, and the, whose bodies were found in the lowest layers of the Tarim Basin centuries, uh, cemeteries in southern, the southern China province. They then compared the genetic profiles to more than 100 ancient populations and 200 modern groups of people and matched some of their genetic makeup to Bronze Age migrants from Central Asia who lived about 5,000 years ago. Hmm. However, 13 of these mummies did not match this profile and were found to be related to hunter-gatherers who lived in southern Siberia and what is now known as northern Kazakhstan Hmm. some 9,000 years ago. 
This was a region of incredible crossroads. There was a vibrant mixing of north, south, east, and west going back as far as 5,000 years, according to anthropologists. It makes it all the more paradoxical in a way that you would have a community which is heavily integrated from cultural perspectives, but who maintain some very, very iconic and unique components of their own logical ideology, local culture, local burial traditions, as well as seemingly unmixed genetic profiles that go back even further into deep time primordial ancestry. So you look at these mummies and evidently one of them is like when they recreated the face of her was supposed to be just like one of the most beautiful women that they'd ever seen huh. in like a mummy. But like the mummy still has hair? Yeah. See, I don't like hair. I don't do. She has like this fur hat on and like she was like very elegant looking. Like her face, you can see her really high, like pretty cheekbones. Oh, look at the like I, You can see eyelashes and like lips. Hair. And, no. Yeah, it's wild. It's a really wild one. But I've always been interested in mummies and there's this other one this 50-year-old woman who was like almost perfectly preserved as well and she was found in China in like this watery kind of grave and all of her like internal organs and everything were like perfectly like preserved and like you could see what she looked like and they found out what was in her stomach they'd seen what she'd oh, eaten because she was that well preserved she was on like this cement box inside of a cement box in this liquid and like all of her clothing was preserved and it was just wild wow yeah, so I've always been interested in those kinds of yeah. mummies in general. Like, the but. weird thing is, like, I have dissected people. <laughs> like, and I'm and like, yet you think and, this and is you're weird. like, this is so cool. And I'm like, this is gross. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's pretty wild. Um, and one more case before we start with the main case for the day. Um, and I thought this was interesting because of its connection um, to where I grew up. But in 1959, oh wait, 1959 murder of a nine-year-old selling candy, one of Washington's coldest cases is finally solved. Oh yeah, I read this. The brutal murder of a nine-year-old girl in 1959 has finally been solved, marking an end to one of Washington state's oldest cold cases. Candace Candy Rogers disappeared while selling campfire mints. And I remember campfire mints. Holy moly, I'm not that old, but I, they still had them around mm -hmm. when I was a kid. This is a fundraiser for the Campfire Girls, a Girl Scout-like organization. She was in Spokane, March 6, 1959, according to a press release issued by the Spokane City Police Department. And Spokane is Eastern Washington, mm -hmm. which is very, very different from Seattle yeah. um, and, the, and the Pacific Northwest. It's Eastern, the other side of the state. It's more like dry, more almost a desert type yeah. of a thing. But searchers found boxes of mint strewn along the street and it was the only indication of which direction she could have gone. In the following days, approximately 1,200 volunteers gathered to find the missing girl. Even the U.S. Air Force assisted in the vast search mm. with helicopter crews to scan the land from above. Unfortunately, one day after Candy Rogers' disappearance, um, a helicopter struck high-tension power lines and crashed into the Spokane River. Three crew members were killed in the crash. Two other airmen survived, which just awful. Mm -hmm. About two weeks later, on March 21st, two airmen from the nearby Fairchild Air Force Base were hunting in the woods off an old trail road about seven miles from Candy's home when they discovered a pair of girls' shoes. They reported their findings when they returned to base, fearing they might be related to the missing child. Mm. Um, a new search was initiated in that area the following day, and Candy Rogers' body was quickly found, buried under a shallow layer of brush and pine needles. Police say she was raped and strangled with her own clothing. 
A viable suspect was never developed despite thousands of tips. Still, generations of investigators tried to solve the case. With no way of knowing the future of trace evidence and sensitivity of ensuring testing procedures, it is a testament to the diligence of investigators in 1959 that evidence was preserved in such a matter. See, that's the thing that's amazing to me. DNA could be extrapolated 62 years later. That's, that's how bonkers. well they preserved that. In early 2021, lab experts with the Washington State Police submitted a sample of semen collected from Candy Rogers' clothing. So that 62 years later, That's they crazy. were able to analyze semen on her clothing. According to police, a Texas lab ran the specimen through a genealogy database, which alerted them to a possible match with three brothers, which isn't that always how it is? It's like mm -hmm. two brothers or three brothers, and they got to narrow it down. Um, of the three men, only one of them, John, John Ray Hoff, had a child. Hoff himself died by suicide in 1970. Mm -hmm. Bye. Investigators contacted the daughter of John Ray Hoff, and upon hearing the nature of the inquiry, she dropped everything and met with detectives, yeah. which that's, that's incredible. Yeah. She, didn't, she didn't have to, but she felt like she needed to. Yeah. Um, testing showed the daughter's DNA was related to the sample taken from the crime scene. To confirm their findings, investigators exhumed Hoff's body and tested his DNA against the semen collected from the crime scene. The results showed a match between John Ray Hoff and the semen specimen collected from Candy, with a probability threshold indicating there was a 25 quintillion, that's 18 zeros, Jeez. times more likely than the sample came from him than from an unrelated person chosen right. at random. It's not clear if Candy's surviving relatives are alive today. According to police, Hoff was 20 years old at the time of the murder and lived one mile from Candy's home. Mm. He was raised in Spokane and served in the U.S. Army beginning at age 17, stationed at missile sites around Fairchild Air Force Base. In 1961, Hoff was convicted of second-degree assault with intent to rob. Police say that he accosted a female, forcibly removing the victim's clothes, tied her up using her own garments, and strangled her before fleeing the scene. In this instance, the victim survived, but Hoff received a sentence of six months again. Looking back at these sexual right. perpetrators, sexually violent criminals who get light sentences and who end up just getting out and doing the same sorts of things again. But as a result of his conviction, he was declared a deserter from the army mm -hmm. and dishonorably discharged after his relief. But before his death, he worked as a door-to-door -door salesman in a, and in a lumberyard. Can you imagine having that guy coming door-to-door? -door? No. Um, when asked for a guess as to how many hours were invested in Candy Rogers' case, they said it isn't measured in hours, it's measured in careers. Mm. That's incredible. Yeah. To f finally close that cold case. Yeah. It just goes to show, never give up. Yeah. Because if you believe and if you push hard enough for something to be resolved, it can be. Yeah. It's really amazing that they were able to preserve the evidence like that. Like to have the foresight. From like, 1959. That's crazy. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> we're going to talk about another um, long-standing case. This one is from 1993, and it's one that I've talked about um, on several previous episodes and, and indicated that I wanted to cover off on the show because I think it's really important. And I'm actually going to talk about, excuse me, two kind of interrelated cases, but I'm going to start with Polly Class, and I'm going to talk about the Amber Alert system. Okay. Okay. So let's take a step back in time to 1993 to be exact. I don't know if we've talked about 1993 before. But the Pentium processor was first introduced. Beanie Babies went on sale. Federal agents raid the Colt in Waco, Texas, where Koresh yep. and his little saga unfolded. The World Trade Center was bombed for the first time by Islamic fundamentalists. The first bagless vacuum cleaner was introduced. 
<laughs> that was a random juxtaposition. Right? <laughs> Bush and Yeltsin signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. I remember that. I remember hearing it on the news and them covering it in, in school. Um, the average new home cost is about $113,000. What's that Gas like? was, I don't know. <laughs> Gas was $1.16 a gallon. Ugh. The first female prime minister came into office in Canada. This was kind of a short period from June to November, but it, still, she was still the first one. Um, Nelson Mandela got the Nobel Peace Prize in October 1993 for his efforts to end apartheid in South Africa. Huge, yeah. huge, huge. Bill Clinton came into office. Yeah. The Brady Bill required background checks for guns, yep. which was a big thing. Muslims and Croats were fighting in Bosnia, causing a humanitarian crisis, Man. which I remember. That was huge. That is... I'm, I, I'm reading about that on Wikipedia right now, and I've read a couple... I mean, anyway, neither here nor there, but that is... Ooh. Anyway. Big. Yeah. Um, the European Union was established. Um, Buckingham Palace first opened its doors to the public. Monica Seles, the famous tennis star, was stabbed by a spectator. Oh, yeah. Oh, that my God. Um, the worst Australian brush fires in history destroyed the second largest national park. Um, two former police officers were convicted of violating Rodney King's civil rights that year. By the way, wild. the new season of Slow Burn is about um, the Rodney King. Yeah, it's um, that case in itself is. Yeah, I think it's very good. I want to cover it at some point, but it's it's a doozy. I mean, there's so much. <clears throat> totally. Yeah. Um, world, excuse me. World Wide Web was born on CERN. Um, the Windows NT. Thank you, Al Gore. Right? <laughs> Windows NT 3.1 <laughs> was released by Microsoft, and then the Michael Jackson child abuse allegations started that year. Movies that were popular were Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, The Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, Indecent Proposal, Pelican Brief, Philadelphia, and Schindler's List were big. Man. Those were some of the top Schindler's ones. List was 93. Yeah. Wow. The X-Files was huge. Yeah. I remember that. My sister loved that show. My I sister just, actually looked like Sully. So, like, really? yeah. She got a lot of people that were like, oh, my God, you look so much like the girl from X-Files. Um, Sears eliminated the 97-year-old catalog sales department. Do you remember the <laughs> Sears catalog? That was, like, huge. You could even buy a freaking house in the Sears catalog. Oh, yeah. It was huge. Um, the average life expectancy worldwide was 75.42 years. Wow. Barney the Purple Dinosaur was big. Um, mm -hmm. Unforgiven wins an Oscar for Best Picture. Seinfeld is king. Dallas mm -hmm. Cowboys won the Super Bowl that year. Um, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton was the song of the year. And the food... Love This is a big song. one. This is huge. This is huge. The Food Network premiered on television. I'm not a Food Network person. I love the Food Network. I don't like that one or HDTV. Don't do any of it. Mm -mm. Love it, love it, love it. I, was, I remember when it came out. I remember watching it and just being obsessed. Mm -hmm. um, popular on TV are 60 Minutes, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Grace Under Fire, Coach, Murphy Brown, Murder, She Wrote. Um, popular groups are Duran Duran, Brian McKnight, Michael Jackson, Tony Braxton, Dr. Dre, Rod Stewart, UB40, Mariah Carey. Um, I Will Always Love You was the number one song that year, along with um, coming in close second, Whoop, There It Is. <laughs> Can't Help Falling in Love With You, That's The Way Love Goes. Uh, fashion was crop tops, platform shoes, animal prints, faux fur, velvet, windbreakers, and denim. I remember all of that. It's all coming back now. I was awful. I was yeah. so awful. Um, Snackwells first introduced their reduced fat cookies. Which oh my God. I remember <laughs> everything was like fat free back then. Yep. Like you wanted to have everything be fat free. Oh yeah. 
Um, the last episode of Cheers played that year. Um, Zima was introduced by the Coors Brewing Company. Mm. Huge. Freaking huge. I remember drinking those. Do you? Even though I, I was think I've ever underage. Had Zima. <laughs> um, Bridges of Madison County. Uh, Danielle Steele, Ann Rice, John Grisham, The Client, Tom Clancy, Stephen King, and Like Water for Chocolate were big books that year. Um, big stuff going on in 1993. Um, now back to Polly Class's case. Um, Polly Hannah Class was born January 3rd, 1981 in Fairfax, California. She liked reading and playing outside, um, and she was just a fun kind of average girl, lively with lots of friends. Um, it was 1993. Polly's family lived in Petaluma, California, which is northern California, about an hour north of San Francisco. So it's October 1st, and Polly's having a slumber party with two of her friends. At some point during the night, Richard Allen Davis enters Polly's bedroom with a knife, and he ties her friends up and pulls pillowcases over their heads and tells them all to count to a 1,000 while he takes Polly with him. Mm. For two months, thousands of people searched for Polly. Uh, but hours after the kidnapping, about 20 miles north of Petaluma in rural Santa Rosa, a woman sees a suspicious vehicle in a ditch in a driveway, on the side of a driveway. She's like leaving from a babysitting job. And this is a private driveway. And so mm -hmm. she calls 911. And they respond to the scene and run the plates on the man, who happens to be Richard Allen Davis. He has no arrest warrants, etc. And the property owner is then urged to make a citizen's arrest for trespassing. So he is with the car? Yeah. Okay. So he's on private property. So they can't really do anything unless the homeowner makes that citizen's arrest. Yeah. And they decide not to. Which, Ugh. I don't really blame him. It sounds like it was a woman. And, like, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would feel comfortable either doing something like that. And maybe she thought, you know, she had no idea who this guy was. Maybe she just thought, you know, he broke down. He's not causing any harm. Like, just let him go. Yeah. What what goes into, like, making a citizen's arrest? Do you just say, like, yes, I want to arrest this person and, like, yes. the police are there? But, like, you yeah. don't actually have to detain them. No. Okay. I mean, if, you're, if the police aren't there, then you do. Okay. In any case, I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing that either. But the deputies are there on her land, and they're telling her, make mm -hmm. a citizen's arrest, pull him in, get him out. Right? Police end up calling a tow truck for this guy, and they find beer in the car. But because he wasn't driving, they fill out, like, they fill out this field investigation card. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, he's got beer in the car, but he's not driving, so we're good. Right. So let like, go. we can't prove that he's been drinking no. and driving because he's not actually driving right now. Right. Yeah. So November 28, 1993, and I think, I don't know, I think the laws may have changed since then. I think there's an open container law, which regardless of whether you're driving or not now, yeah. they can do something about it. But at that time, in that they area, they didn't have that. Okay. Um, in any case, November 28, 1993, the property owner, who's a female, she finds ballet leggings and calls the police. She finds these torn leggings on her property. Um, in the meantime, though, they discover a palm print and they keep Davis under surveillance at an Indian ranchera near Ukiah, California. They found a palm print where? Oh, on the leggings. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, nothing new is found after that day and when they search the property where Davis was found a few weeks previous, but police arrest him for polyclass's kidnapping. Okay. So the beginning, they're like, we have enough evidence with the leggings and the mm -hmm. palm print on the leggings to take him in okay. and detain, detain him, right? 
Um, at the beginning of December, massive searches are launched in Sonoma County by the Petaluma Police Department and the FBI. It was one of the largest ever conducted searches in California. No human remains were found during that occasion. Then December 4th, 1993, Davis surprises everyone by confessing to the kidnapping of, and murdering of Polly. So basically, they're searching full on. They have this largest manhunt in that history of that mm -hmm. area going on. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, guess what? I did it. Mm. Like, what a dick. Like, make everyone spend millions and millions of, or like millions of dollars searching for this little girl and then be like, yeah, I did it. Anyway, um, in a strange twist, he leads police to her body where she'd been buried in a shallow grave off Highway 101, a mile south of Cloverdale, California. He admitted to strangling young Polly, but refused to give a timeline of what had happened. Reportedly, he'd killed her before deputies arrived to investigate on the homeowner's property trespassing thing that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and hid her body near where his car was stuck. Reportedly, when they found him on the property, he was sweaty and out of breath and covered in dirt and debris when deputies, arri when deputies arrived to question him for the trespassing. So evidently, he buried her out in the current site after he was let go. So he kind of hid her body and then permanently buried her after mm. they let him go. So if they would have detained him, yeah. I think the theory is if they would have detained him, that they would have found the body sooner because right. he had her near. He had hidden her kind of out of sight, but near enough to where he could go grab the body after right. they let him go. Uh, Davis had his trial in mid-1996 during which he was convicted of first-degree murder of Polly with four special circumstances. And those were robbery, burglary, kidnapping, and lewd act on a child. This actually made him eligible for the death penalty. Mm -hmm. He got lethal injection as his sentence. Um, then he stuck out both middle fingers to the family and the press, taunting them, claiming that Polly's last words were that her father had molested her. Like, what a... Jesus Christ. It makes me so mad. Yeah. It makes me just livid. I wish they would have gagged him. Um, he's currently on death row in San Quentin State Prison in Marin County if you want to send him hate mail. Um, he's in solitary confinement for his own safety and due to multiple bother. attacks. Due to multiple attacks on him and a drug overdose, he's still making appeals. So he's still wasting people's time and money appealing yeah. things. Um, this one was really interesting because Winona Ryder... Um, who was raised in Petaluma, yeah. offered, offered $200,000 for Polly to be returned safe. This is before, obviously, before they found her. Mm -hmm. And she dedicated Little Women, the role, her role mm -hmm. in that movie, to Polly Class because it had been her favorite book, which I didn't know that either. I've seen that movie a hundred times. Yeah. Um, once Polly was brought home, her family cremated her and spreaded her ashes over the Pacific Ocean. Her father, Mark Class who we talked about in the Michelle Lay episode, is now an advocate for children and missing persons. Mm -hmm. He quickly got to work creating the Class Kids Foundation to help families find missing loved ones with methodical and proven organized search efforts. He's been on numerous TV platforms and helped with news stories and documentaries over and over again. The CHP radio practices also were modified after this case to a more centralized 911 dispatch system to be broadcast on all police channels. Hmm. A performing arts center was named after her in Petaluma and politicians, law enforcement, prosecutors began pushing for the three strikes law, which was then signed into law March 1994 after this case happened because this guy was a career criminal. Yeah. But interesting, right? Um, there's not a lot of detail on that case, but 
I think what was also interesting is it kind of led me to looking up the um, Amber Alert. Yeah, it's a precedent-setting case. Hang on one second. So let's talk about that one really quick. Okay. So basically... An Amber Alert is a child abduction emergency alert, and it's a message distributed by a child abduction alert system to ask the public for help in finding abducted children. Mm -hmm. It came into being in 1996, and the system is named after Amber Renee Hagerman, who was the victim of an unsolved child murder case. So basically, Amber is a backronym for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. Alternative regional alert names were once used in Georgia. There was Levi's Call in memory of Levi Frady. In Hawaii, there was the Male Amber Alert in, in memory of Male Gilbert. Um, they have a bunch of them in other places. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., Amber Alerts are distributed via commercial and public radio stations, internet radio, satellite radio, television stations, text messages, and cable TV by the Emergency Alert System and the NOAA Weather Radio. They also um, put them, like, on the freeways where they have those electric signs. I'm not done yet. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the alerts are also issued via email, electronic traffic-controlled signs, commercial electronic billboards, and through wireless device SMS text messages. Mm -hmm. They've also teamed up with Google, Bing, and Facebook to relay information on Amber Alerts to an ever-growing demographic. Oh, good. So, Facebook actually does something good. The decision to declare an Amber Alert is made by each police organization, in many cases the state police or highway patrol that investigates each of the abductions. Police information in an Amber Alert usually consists of the name and description of the abductee, a description of the suspected abductor, and a description and license plate number of the abductor's vehicle, if it's mm -hmm. available. So Amber Hagerman was born November 25, 1986 in Arlington, Texas. She was a young girl who was abducted while riding her bike with her brother in Arlington. Mm -hmm. Her younger brother, Ricky, had gone home without her because she wanted to stay at the parking lot for a while and ride her bike. When he returned to get her, Ricky found her bicycle without her. A neighbor who had witnessed the abduction called 911. And on hearing the news, Hagerman's father, Richard, called Mark Class, whose daughter, Polly, had been abducted and murdered in Petaluma, California on October 1st, 1993. Richard and Amber's mother, Donna Whitson, now Donna Norris, called the news media and the FBI, and their neighbors began searching for Amber. Four days after her abduction, near midnight, Amber's naked body was discovered in a creek behind an apartment complex with severe laceration wounds to her neck. The site of her discovery was less than five miles from where she was abducted, and her murder remains unsolved. Within days of Amber's death, though, Donna Watson was calling for tougher laws governing kidnappers and sex offenders. Amber's parents soon established People Against Sex Offenders, or PASO, and they collected signatures hoping to force the Texas legislature into passing more stringent laws to protect children. As the search for Amber's killer continued, PASO received almost daily coverage in local media. Companies donated office supplies, computers, internet service, etc. And with the help of Mark Class, they drafted the Amber Hagerman Child Protection Act. Both of Amber's parents were present when President Bill Clinton signed the bill into law, creating the National Sex Offender Registry. Mm -hmm. Whitson and Hagerman began collecting signatures in Texas, which they planned to present to then-Governor George W. Bush as a sign that people wanted more stringent laws for sex offenders. Shortly afterward, they launched the first-ever Amber Alert. So, Whitson testified in front of U.S. Congress June 1996, asking for them to create a nationwide registry of sex offenders. 
and among the sections of the bill was one that would create a national sex offender registry. For the next two years, alerts were made manually to participating radio stations. And in 1998, the Child Alert Foundation created the first fully automated alert notification system to notify surrounding communities when a child was reported missing. So that's kind of a little bit of the background of that. And I think that it's a, a super useful tool. I wonder what the efficiency retrieval rate is. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, of the children abducted and murdered by strangers, 75% are killed within the first three hours in the U.S. Yes. A Amber Alerts are designed to inform the general public quickly when a child has been kidnapped and is in danger, so the public will have additional eyes and ears of law enforcement. As of August 2013, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates that 657 children have been successfully recovered as a result of the Amber Alert program. Fully 50% or 117 alerts were categorized by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as being family abductions, mm -hmm. very often a parent involved in a custody dispute. According to the 2014 Amber Alert Report, 186 Amber Alerts were issued in the U.S. involving 239 children, 60 were taken by strangers or people other than their legal guardians. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. And the statistics on child abductions... The majority of them are family-related abductions, usually non-custodial parents. Right. Um, but the ones that are stranger abductions are the ones that are more likely to result in the death of the child. Absolutely. So, interesting stuff. I, I yeah. worked for a good period of time when I lived in San Diego for an attorney that did a lot of child abduction type cases. and. Mm fought for parents who were dealing with non-custodial parents who were taking mm -hmm. children over the borders into Mexico or Canada. Oh, gosh. So it was a really, like, he had this organization um, that he would go and, and develop support and get attorneys, gather attorneys to help represent parents that needed pro bono assistance in obtaining their children back after they'd wow. been abducted by the non-custodial parent and taken across country lines, across yeah. border, country borders. Because it is often very challenging, depending on what country you go to, to oh, yeah. pull children back after they've been abducted by a, a parent. Yeah. So it's a it's a huge, huge problem, and there are literally thousands of cases every year of things like this happening, and it's mm -hmm. it's really scary. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to follow uh, Nick Mick with National Center for Missing and Exploited Children on social media because they post missing. Um, they post mis missing children reports that they, they themselves have. They post them for local um, jurisdictions and for all over the country. And, and the Amber Alert system is also on social media. So I'd encourage you guys to go follow them because, I mean, you never know. You never know. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think a lot of times, too, I think we see these Amber Alerts and different notifications on the news about missing kids. And we just kind of ignore them. Just put them to the yeah. back of your head, brush them to the side. And I think it's so very important to read them and look and yeah. open your eyes and be aware. Because a lot of times cases like this where children have been abducted, abducted happens when people are around and they just mm -hmm. don't know that anything is wrong. And so they don't say anything or they maybe think it's not their place to say something mm -hmm. or they don't want to cause trouble or they don't want to stir anything up, etc. But or there yeah. are ways that you can report on things like this anonymously. And it's far better to say something than to let it go and know that you potentially could have reported upon the person who abducted and killed a child right yeah it's yeah. much better in these sorts of circumstances to be safe than watch something really bad happen to right. a child that doesn't deserve something like that 
Yeah, and I know, like, at least with an iPhone, you can, like, turn off the Amber Alert signal because it, the signal is really loud. Even if your phone's on silent, like, you get a... It makes a really loud noise. It's really jarring because it's intended to get your attention. And I yeah. know that they give you the option to turn it off, but please don't turn it off. Yeah, I that's mean, just, really important. Yeah. Right. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up the episode for the day? No, that's it. So um, one thing that I would like to kind of also remind people is the importance of um, rate, review, and subscribe on the platforms that you use. It really helps our podcast a lot. Um, we've been doing this since 2018, so this is we're going on three full years of podcasting now. Wow. So <laughs> I, I realize that. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. So <laughs> we're not a flash in the pan. We're not just some weird podcast that's like, hey, we're going to put out a couple episodes and then drop off the face of the planet, yeah. which, I mean, nothing against people that do that, but there are plenty of podcasts out there that don't have longevity. And yeah. we do this for the love of true crime um, and to get, get word out there on certain issues um, yeah. and things that we're passionate about. We don't get paid for this. So like we basically do it as a labor of love. So I think that that says something and we appreciate it when friends and family go say nice things or go rate review and subscribe. But it's really important that people that aren't friends and family are doing that yeah. as well. Cause it really helps our podcast out. It helps us pop up higher in the ratings and it helps other people be able to find important topics and shows mm -hmm. and, and things that they want to hear about as well. So I would encourage you to do that if you have not done so already. And for those of you who have already done that, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, the support of our friends and family and listeners out there is amazing. We love you guys. And we're so just appreciative of all that you've done for us over the course of these last three years. It's hard to believe that we've been doing this for that I long. <laughs> I remember our very first episode. <laughs> you remember that? Yes. <laughs> I was living in Escondido. I was in the wagon wheel house and I was recording. And we had like this little study area at the top of our stairs that like... Yeah. <laughs> Echoey as hell. Yeah. Yeah. We've <laughs> we come a good way since then. Yeah. Before we realized that it was really important to find a stable recording environment. We yeah. Echo. And then I started recording in my closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was in the middle of my closet on the floor for a while there. And then we moved to um, Illinois and have been doing it here. So I apologize for the variations in sound quality <laughs> on my side. Darcy's always sound good. <laughs> But I've been trying to, you know, determine what's the best way to eliminate echo and to yeah. really provide the best sound quality. And I got a brand new speaker now, a brand new microphone now. Um, nice. A good high quality microphone. Yay. So hopefully the um, sound quality for these couple of episodes that we've done last will be good. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> it took me sure at least an hour to figure out how to hook the microphone up <laughs> and use it. I was doing it before you got on the call with me today. Because yeah, I had tried using it before, and then it was like a blank line. Yeah, I like guess. it worked, and then it worked when you were like testing it, and then as soon as we went to record, which is that that's what always happens. Like yeah. as soon as we hit the record button, it's like something messes up. Well, it's but, like this fancy microphone. It's the same yeah. brand that you have, but it's like the three hundred dollar like version. Yeah, like the newer one. <laughs> the and newer, it's nicer got one. like twenty buttons, and yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure what. 19 of I have them a button. <laughs> <laughs> they need to make it much more simple. It's supposed yeah. to be a plug and play microphone. And yeah. it's like, it's too many buttons. And it's got like these things underneath it. So you can like press it, put it into like a professional soundboard. It's oh. got the little slots for the cords for that. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Like, I'm never going to do that. I'm yeah. way too unsophisticated. I bought this really fancy when you first started this really fancy podcast 
um, recording system that was like two hundred dollars, and um, couldn't figure out how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sitting in a box in my back closet now. I've never used That's it. Right. So I had I had to go online and look up the best plug and play microphone. Yeah. To, it's just something simple. Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep it simple because I'm not smart enough to do sophisticated technology by myself. <laughs> but I do remember those first couple episodes. I think we talked about DB Sweeney or wait, uh, DB Cooper. DB Cooper. We talked about DB Cooper and yeah. what was yours? I think you uh, the bunker Alabama bunker hostage. We yes, which we re-recorded. That was freaking awesome. Yeah. I love that That's a crazy episode. story. I don't know it's that we really ever released story. that re-recorded one. Did we? Wait, I don't know. I thought we did. did I know we re-recorded it. I have no idea if we re-released it. That was such a good episode. It was like, I think we called it Pick which, pick a Vegetable or Pick Which Vegetable. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, get, he, get, he did. He brought vegetables to the bus driver. Yeah, he got on the bus that with a bag like of vegetables. His, I mean, that was his thing. Yeah. His, well, anyway, it's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's funny, right? That part's funny. The rest of the story is very much not funny. Yeah, but that was a super intense case. And so yeah. if you want to hear that one, you want to go back and listen to some of our very first cases, yeah. we encourage you to go check those out. Forgive us for the sound quality, but hopefully the content's good. <laughs> yeah, no, I think some of those cases are just super, super interesting. Yeah. And we've always picked things that we are passionate about and mm -hmm. cases that we always found interesting and that we want to share our personal take and hopefully a few bizarre little details that people want to hear about as well. And one day, if I ever finish this bloody degree, I'm going to get back to writing cases and we'll do some more <laughs> blood force trauma stuff because I'm actually working in that field now and studying it. So, yeah. so you can blame me for all the crappy content no, over the course no. of the last six months. Well, like Sarah's working like 86 jobs and I'm like just working an odd job and being in school and I'm like I can't write anything and Sarah's like I've got three episodes ready and I'm like crap and I just released two books and I, I'm not pulling my weight that Sarah's been wonderful I'm an overachiever <laughs> what can I say um, anyway if you have any questions comments or suggestions you could shoot us an email we absolutely love hearing from you guys we promise we'll do another um, email episode here yeah. soon um, but uh, you can shoot us an email or at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Um, questions, comments, suggestions, anything you want to say to us, you want to yell at us, whatever. I'd sure. prefer if you said something nice, but you can't always control that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we will post pictures of uh, Polly Class and, and Amber Hagerman and um, the varying information about the laws and stuff there as well. Awesome. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye. Bye.